Halloween night, a small American town 15 years ago. seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Halloween. Another edition of the Retro Room. Yes, scary time. Halloween is here. That, of course, was the trailer from the original Halloween in 1978. That's 40 years ago. And we're going to talk about what it was like then and today. There's another Halloween out now, 40th anniversary. Jamie Lee Curtis is back. She's a grandmother, but she's still fighting Michael Myers. But how did we get from that original low-budget film that was all the rage and started a real trend to today's 40th anniversary. We're going to talk to Bruce Fretz. He's a New York Times columnist and longtime film and television reporter. He's going to give us the insight, some of the backstory to that original Halloween movie that had an unknown Jamie Lee Curtis, an unknown John Carpenter, plenty of low-budget elements, and it was only filmed in 31 days. So let's check in with Bruce Fretz and our interview right now. Hello, Bruce. Are you there? I'm here, Joe. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Excellent. Well, of course, uh, for those who don't know, but many would, you are longtime media, TV, and movie uh, writer, reporter, columnist. You have several hats. You were at Closer magazine? Correct, yes. I'm the senior articles editor at Closer Weekly. Closer Weekly, let's be clear. But yep. uh, also doing uh, regular uh, writing and gig for the New York Times. Which Correct. You've been there, what, about five years you've been doing work for them, and it's gotten a lot yes. more regular in recent times. Yeah, in the last year or so, I've started writing a regular column about trailers, and then I've also started this series of oral histories um, where I interview people who are involved in classic films and sort of put together the story of how, how it was made through the voices of the people who made it. Excellent. The oral histories, you have one that just came out this last week on Halloween, which is both hitting its 40th anniversary, but also we're ready for the next Halloween. As if, exactly. Uh, the as next if Halloween, uh, exactly. The, the next Halloween, which is just called Halloween, uh, again, opens on uh, Friday, October 19th. So in order to uh, celebrate the 40th anniversary and, and also uh, commemorate the new one, I uh, got to interview uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter, who directed the original, and Nick Castle, who played the original Michael Myers, and several other cast members to um, reminisce about uh, the making of the film and put it all together. And it's online now at NewYorkTimes.com, and it's in uh, this Sunday's Arts and Leisure section. It will, it's in the Arts and Leisure section for Sunday the 14th. 14th, correct. Uh, online, yep. as I have already read it, this is a really good uh, treatment of the movie, which, you know, is... It's interesting because it, it was not the first horror movie, obviously, but 
it, it right. seemed like it was the first that came out in 1978. John Carpenter was what? Was was 30 he, years old. By the 30 way. years old at the time. Yep. Jamie Lee Curtis, as, as your piece uh, points out, had never been in a movie before. Right, she was 19 years old. She was 19. Uh, of course, she's the daughter of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis, right. hence her name. Right. And, of course, Janet Lee was in Psycho, which, of course, was, right. a, was a groundbreaking movie of its time. But, obviously, there was there were horror movies before Halloween, but mm-hmm. it seemed like it was a different kind, and it also started sort of the trend in the late 70s and 80s that brought us a Friday the 13th and Nightmare on right. Elm Street and a lot of right. yeah. warrior and... Maybe more screamy, if that's a fair mm-hmm. treatment. What is it about Halloween that that was different and made it successful? Given that it was such a low budget film with a very lesser known cast, I think it was really the mastery of John Carpenter. I mean, there have been horror movies before. There have been kind of slasher movies before. I mean, in a way, Psycho is a slasher movie, but it created a whole genre of these slasher movies. Most of which, uh, almost all of which, were inferior to Halloween because they weren't. Directed by John Carpenter. Even John Carpenter couldn't really make Halloween again when he tried to do sequels. Halloween is an almost perfect, although there's some technical flaws that you can (laughs) see because it was made for only $300,000, but in terms of efficiency of storytelling, it's an almost perfect movie. It was done so economically, and I think that forced them to be as creative as possible so they have these really long takes, for example, because they didn't have a lot of money to shoot a lot of takes. And they had this brand-new camera called the Panaglide that they could do long, handheld takes that weren't, you know, kind of shaky cam, make you sick to your stomach things. They had this weird, smooth kind of swaying feeling to it. And from the very first shot of the movie, which is from the point of view of young Michael Myers, the, the serial killer, through his eyes for five minutes as you watch him um, murder someone, and then it's revealed that he's actually a child in a clown costume, which you didn't know the whole time. It just, it's, a, it's just a breathtaking work of cinema. It took a while for people to catch on to it, actually. It was not a big hit when it first released. did not get good reviews when it was first released. The people discovered it. It became a word-of-mouth hit, and then the critics discovered it, and people like Roger Ebert started praising it and comparing it to Psycho. It's become a modern classic that 40 years later is still... Uh, you know, churning out <laughs> the sequels. And so, what, now, uh, it's an amazing story. What was Carpenter's status when when he made it? Was he known at all he in had, the film? What did he? He done? had made two two fairly obscure movies: a sci-fi movie called Dark Star and a, a prison movie called Assault on Precinct 13, that had minor cult followings. You know, it got a little bit of notice. Uh, you know, in sort of cineast circles, but. Um, he had no real status in Hollywood. When Erwin uh, Yablans, who was a famous ex- exploitation producer, came to him and said, I want you to make a movie about babysitters getting murdered. I'll give you $300,000. He said, great. <laughs> I just want to make movies. He insisted on having Final Cut. He insisted on having his name above the title so he'd have complete creative control. And Yablon said, fine. The money was put up by this uh, producer, Mustafa Akkad, and they just let him go. They just said, here's the money. Bring me back a movie about babysitters getting murdered. Actually, it was Yablon's idea to change the title to Halloween, uh, which was a brilliant idea because it branded it as the horror movie, basically, and you know made it into an annual tradition. It was originally going to be called The Babysitter Murders, and I think if it had been called that, we probably still wouldn't remember it to this day. But calling it Halloween, setting it on Halloween... And then the way Carpenter went about making the movie turned it into this 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 cherished classic that people watch over and over again and and film students study and just it works it works as a great work of of cinema it also just works as a scary movie. Did uh, Carpenter write the movie as well? He, he did he did he co-wrote it with Deborah Hill who was his right. girlfriend at the time. And I know your and, piece uh, uh, does a lot of a lot of 
great credit to her, and she passed yeah, away. Yeah, she deserves a lot ago. of the credit. Yeah, she died about um, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, fairly young. She was 54 years old when she died. And she was really a pioneer in the sense that she was a, a full-fledged partner to Carpenter on the set. She was a producer on the film and co-wrote the script. You know, ended up going on to become a very powerful producer and also someone who hired a lot of women for positions they were not normally hired for. So it's interesting that this movie Halloween, that some people consider kind of an anti-feminist film in the sense that, uh, you know, it sort of uh, tells the story of these three babysitters, two of whom are promiscuous and one of whom is a virgin, and the virgin is the only one who survives. So some feminists read into that that it's sort of a relic of the patriarchy. At the same time, really kind of advanced the cause of women in Hollywood by uh, all the, the uh, contributions of Deborah Hill um, and uh, what she went on to do as a result. Yeah, and I saw in your piece there were there was reference to uh, people claiming sexism and right you know, misogyny. And I, I don't, I, I never really found that. If you're going to have babysitters, they're going to be women generally in that time. You know, teenage mm-hmm. girls are babysitting more than teenage boys. Just a fact. And obviously, I, right. I would assume a female victim uh, hero is a little bit less defensible person which could mm-hmm. be a sexist comment, but in general, a lot of your initial victims in these movies are women. But I don't think anyone right. would, would look into it to say, oh, okay, these two are screwing around, and so they're going to get killed. She's not, so she's going to live. It just seemed like yeah, I mean, someone has to be killed in these movies, right? Right. It, I mean, it, it, even among the cast members, there's disagreement about whether they think that the film is sexist on that level or not. I mean, Carpenter has said he didn't intend it to be that way. It never occurred to him. Nancy Loomis, who plays one of the promiscuous babysitters who gets killed, basically said, well, that just proves the point, that this was what the patriarchy was like at the time. It didn't even occur to him that this would be kind of a sexist message. So she saw it as maybe sexist. She did, yeah. And that, but but PJ Souls, who played one of the other babysitters, said that's ridiculous. Jamie Lee Curtis comes down somewhere in the middle. She sort of says, well, it's it's good that people are debating this because it's you know people are thinking and that's important. But her point of view, which I didn't have room to get into in the piece, unfortunately, is that she feels like her character Laurie Strode is a very first of all a very vulnerable character in the first film. Her being a virgin kind of lends to that you know vulnerability, and you need to care about her, you need to be worried about her. But also is a very resourceful character who ends up you know fighting back and you know fighting off uh, Michael Myers, and now continues 40 years later in the new version to protect herself and her family so in some ways is a very strong female role model so it's it's a complicated question but you know carpenter kind of just didn't didn't anticipate it you know he said that he went to a women's film festival once he being given an award to women's film festival didn't think about it and he got booed so you know there are a lot of women out there who who find halloween to be a, a sexist movie so it's a it's an interesting ongoing debate and she also like you said she's a She's a strong character. She fights back. She she also doesn't just run out of the house and leave the kids behind. You know, she's babysitting right. for one child, and then the other child, who's actually Kyle Richards, as you exactly. point out, she is sister of Kim Richards and a yes. uh, reality star in her own right, which is interesting. The little yes. tidbits in this movie, she comes over, so she's taking care of two kids. This right. this killer comes. She could easily have ran away and gotten the cops. True. But no, she protects the kids. She tries to get rid of mm-hmm. them. You know, hide them in a room. She fights mm-hmm. back with the famous right. first with a needle point, uh, right. knitting needle, and then with uh, the hanger in the closet, which is one of the best, exactly. best scary scenes. So, oh, yeah, absolutely! You, you could say this is a very strong character. But the other people in the movie, there really are no other. I mean, had PJ Souls done anything before this? She, of course, went on to. Stripes and uh, Rock and Roll right. High School and a few others. Yeah, I, th- I think she's been in one or two small films before this, but really everyone was kind of an unknown except for Donald Pleasance, right. uh, who played uh, the psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis. 
and they felt like they needed an established actor to kind of give the film a little bit of credibility. Donald Pleasance was a very, um, you know, obviously the great escape, films like that. Carpenter was kind of surprised that Pleasance agreed to do it. Apparently, Donald Pleasance's daughter, who was a teenager at the time, had been a fan of Carpenter's earlier movie, Assault on Precinct 13, and especially the music that Carpenter had written for it, because Carpenter scores a lot of his own movies. And so that's the only reason he did it. Obviously, you mentioned the music, but I, I had read somewhere else that the movie, when it was originally screened, didn't get some great reaction, but then when Carpenter added the music in and, and people screened it, right. that was it. I mean, what is... Yeah, what in fact, Nancy, Nancy Loomis, who plays one of the babysitters, told me that she had seen a, a rough cut of it without the music and thought it was terrible. Thought it was boring, you know, and then she saw it again with a crowd, you know, once the music had been put in and was amazed by how scary it is. I mean, it's an incredibly effective score. It's kind of, you know, again, another parallel to Psycho. It's akin to Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho. But the difference is Carpenter's kind of an amateur musician. I mean, he's not really professionally trained. He had been taught to play piano by his father. And he, he wrote this score and recorded it in three days. And he based the initial, you know, sort of the signature riff on um, how his father had taught him to play bongos in 5-4 time, which is kind of an unusual time signature that's best known for uh, Dave Brubeck's time out, you know, uses 5-4 time. So, um, you know, he recorded it. He, the, the, the score is credited to the Bowling Green Symphony Orchestra, although it's actually just John Carpenter playing the piano and then this guy who was the synthesizer professor at USC, John Carpenter had gone to USC film school, just the two of them, you know, together in a studio, knocking it out in three days, and it, you know, goes on to become one of the great film scores of all time. And is that where he's from, Bowling Green, Kentucky? He went to school in, uh, yeah, at Western Kentucky in, in Bowling Green. So uh, that was the the, uh, the reference that he threw in there. So uh, yeah, tons of great little inside, you know, nuggets and tidbits and, and jokes and things like that that uh, the fans love to, you know, they they gobble that stuff up. So. And in uh, no, is, and is Carpenter from California? Uh, no, I mean he's from the South originally, but he he went to uh, USC, which is where he met Nick Castle who ended up playing Michael Myers in the original. They were film students together. Nick Castle went on to make movies as well. He's actually was the son of dancers, is a dancer himself, made, and went on to make the film Tap with uh, Gregory Hines and, and Sammy Davis Jr. many years later. But he was just, he was just a friend of John's from, from USC, and he wanted to hang out on the set. He hadn't made a movie yet. He wanted to watch John direct to sort of learn how he did it. And so John said, oh, well, we need a guy to walk around in a mask. Can you do that? <laughs> so that's how he got cast as Michael Myers. Although, you know, Carpenter, there was always a method to his madness, and he knew because uh, Nick Castle was a dancer and the son of dancers that he had a certain grace about his movements. And so, you know, that's one of the scariest things about Halloween is the way Michael Myers moves because he doesn't run. You know, he's, he's, he moves very slowly and deliberately, but it's, it's a very scary, you know, type of motion. And, and Castle said, I just walked around and did what John told me, but... You know, he also said he was clay in John Carpenter's hands, and you know, John had a vision for the whole film, and that was part of it. And it just, you know, it's a combination of great creative design and also just kind of divine happenstance that you ended up with Nick Castle as Michael Myers, and uh, now he's, you know, he in the new version he doesn't play Michael Myers; they have a, a stuntman do it, but um, he did stand in for for one or two scenes, and and all the people who've played Michael Myers since. Nick Castle have tried to sort of mimic, you know, his style of movement that he created in the original film. Yeah, he kind of had a cross between, you know, the, the horror villain and even a zombie kind of walk. Yes. And zombies yeah, are exactly. big now and, and 
back right. then. Right. In the day, I guess they weren't as much. Filming was all done in, in 1978, and it came out in 1978. I mean, that's kind of a quick... It did. They shot it in the spring. They shot it in the spring in Southern California, and they were trying to make it look like the fall, because obviously they filmed set on Halloween, and it's set in Haddonfield, Illinois. So they had to actually hand-paint leaves, <laughs> because there were no leaves on the ground. Um, in Southern California, so they shot it in, in the spring, and they wanted it to come out obviously in October to take advantage of Halloween, but they didn't have a lot of money, so just all the cast members, the crew members, just sat around painting leaves, and they just kept dumping these leaves around the set, um, you know, in the background as they're, as they're walking around the streets. But it was actually shot in, in South Pasadena. And another great uh, piece of music isn't it, not just a theme song, but throughout the movie, there's this sort of, you know, somber, scary, suspenseful mix of music um, when uh, Laurie, the Jamie Lee Curtis character, tries to call her friend across the street. Both friends are across the street and she doesn't know mm -hmm. they're dead and she's walking over. As she's going through the house we, we the audience don't know that they're dead we do know that the nancy loomis character was strangled because she strangled yeah. while she's talking to her on the phone which is another great scene and has great right. music within it but you don't i mean you don't know where she is or what happened um right and her other friend it was up in the bed and mm -hmm. she was attacked while she was on the phone so yep. 
it's you know that they're probably dead but you don't know where and then when she comes into right. the house she finds first the one friend uh, i think it's the nancy loomis character mm-hmm. um, is laid out on the bed which is a very mm-hmm. creepy scene and yeah. michael had stolen the uh, gravestone of his sister which of course right. the movie begins with him killing his sister years earlier so he, exactly. goes, he uh, goes to the cemetery, takes her headstone, mm-hmm. places it above. Do you know why that was That was such an almost gothic kind of scene? And then she finds the other friends in the closet. Right, um, right. Did Carpenter ever indicate why he sort of... It's almost a crucifixion type shot of her friend dead on the bed. Or is it just a really eerie yeah, we, yeah, I think it's just I think it's just an eerie image. But yeah. um, what's interesting is that in the later films... It was then established that Lori was actually Michael Myers' sister as yes. well, and there's yes. this whole sort of complicated mythology. They throw that all out with a new one because they realized that that was a mistake when they did that. Uh, when you see the new one, somebody alludes to it, and they're like, oh, that was just an urban myth. So they kind of erase all this history because most of the sequels, almost all the sequels to Halloween, and this is the tenth now that's coming out, are not very good. <laughs> and even the ones that Carpenter himself was involved in, like Halloween 2. Halloween 3 then was a totally different story. They tried to take it in a different direction. Michael Myers isn't even in it. Right. It's but then they turned out a few more. People, yeah. yeah, they turned out a few more after that, and then they tried to reboot it on the 20th anniversary uh, with Jamie Lee Curtis with H2O, which is a pretty good movie. You know, none of them, including the new one, which I've seen, can really hold a candle to the original. So. And then there were versions that were a uh, reboot with uh, Malcolm McDowell. Yes. Now, yes, that, yeah. I, never, I never saw any of those. Did they sort of do just a reboot starting from the beginning? Yeah, yeah. It was 2009 really was the first reboot. Yeah, yeah, they did, they did two of those. And they were um, just basically the original story retold with different people? Yeah, and it just, you know, it just the first one is just... And they never intended there to be sequels. I mean, that's right. the interesting thing is that even though at the end of the original, Michael Myers disappears, and you would think, oh, they're setting it up for a sequel, that was not the intent. The right. intent was just to freak you out, to think, oh, Michael Myers is still well, out there. There, there so. seems like, yeah, it seems like one of the best things about the movie, it's this whole boogeyman theory. We're all, yes. we're all kids, right. you're afraid, there's a man, he's under right. the bed, he's going to come in the window. I remember when I was really little, I'd have nightmares that someone was, was coming in the window and going to kill me, and... You know, uh, you're scared little kid in your room. Here's right. the boogeyman. And then the great thing about the ending is not only that he's still out there, but you can't kill him. I mean, exactly. Donald yeah. Pleasant's yeah. the last scene is him shooting him several times. He falls. Right. Look, and then you look away, and they come back, and there's just the empty spot on the lawn, and then that exactly. music. I mean, you can't, you can't yeah. come up better than that. Now it's a great ending. It's a great ending. But I think now people look at it 
knowing that they went on to make all these sequels and think, oh, well, they were just setting up this whole franchise, but that was not, you know, they didn't, they didn't know if anyone was going to see this movie. You know, they just wanted to make a movie. They were just kids, you know, a lot of them just out of film school, to, uh, having a good time trying to make a movie for $300,000 in 21 days. And they had no idea that 40 years later, you know, they're predicting that the new one's going to open to like $60 million, you know, opening weekend. So Talking to Bruce Fretz, a columnist for The New York Times and Closer Weekly, great piece on the 40th anniversary of Halloween and the Halloween, uh, the latest version. Now, this brings uh, Lori back to Haddonfield. Or Correct, she, yes. She's... And she's now a grandmother. Um, Correct, yeah. But if I recall, and I had a little... little uh, little bone to pick with with the producers i actually saw the halloween hto a few years ago even though it came out 20 mm-hmm. years ago um that was the 20th anniversary this is the 40th but uh she kills michael myers chopped his head off at the end right how do they deal with that they're kind of just erasing all the films really after halloween one um uh, yeah so yeah. we're supposed to be uh, it's supposed to be halloween one and then halloween 2018 pretty much yeah. pretty much yeah I mean, none of them none of the mythology that's kind of unfolded in between really comes into play in the in the new one so how much do we allow uh, kind of a clean slate allow that as you're a you're a film <laughs> uh, expert and, and fan as uh, and i'm a fan i, don't I think at your level are we is, is that allowed it's... nowadays after dallas uh, you know cut off the whole season to dream <laughs> is does anything go or is it getting some critique? i think anything goes yeah i think it's i think it's fine you know i mean the the hardcore fan you know fanboys and fangirls might have some bones to pick, but you know, I think they're just so excited that there's a new Halloween that they'll probably let it slide. But uh, yeah, I mean, there were some mistakes made along the way, clearly, if you go back and watch some of those sequels. But I think what uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, who wrote the new version uh, with a little bit of help from John Carpenter, wanted to do was to make a film that kind of pays homage to the original. There are a lot of scenes that are directly referenced. You know, you'll see shots that are. Uh, taken directly from the original and recreated, but also advanced the story to 40 years later to where, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis has kind of lived this life as a almost a recluse, you know, a paranoid recluse, terrified that Michael Myers is going to come try to get her again, but at the same time also very excited about the prospect of facing off against him again and her family, especially her daughter, played by Judy Greer, you know, is worried about her and, you know, thinks that she's nuts, but as, of course, we find out she's not nuts because Michael Myers escapes and they do have a, another face-off. So, you know, it's it's an interesting mix of, you know, sort of trying to be self-referential and kind of, uh, you know, play to the hardcore fan base, but also just, again, work as a straight horror film where there are people in peril against this seemingly unkillable maniac. And the other thing I wanted to mention, two things I want to ask you, and I know you probably have to go, but I appreciate your time. First of all, the original version, one of the things that I liked about it, you compare it to Psycho, which is very similar. The Hitchcockian element is, is great because it's not a lot. there's not a lot of gore, there's not a lot of blood, uh, compared, again, to some of the films that followed. I mean, Friday the 13th was just a blood fest. And, uh, although Nightmare on Elm Street, you could argue, had at least some creativity in some of its murders. But a lot of the other things that followed, you know, they were bloody horror movies. This one was mostly very Hitchcockian, very suspense, the music, the timing, the characters, the and again, that old fear that kids and babysitters have. What if someone comes to the house? John Carpenter is really a student of old Hollywood. He had yeah. grown up watching Hitchcock and watching Howard Hawks. Uh, in fact, uh, the movie The Thing uh, was very influential on him, and you see a in the original Halloween, the kids are watching The Thing on television, the 1951 yes. version that Hawks directed, and then Carpenter went on to remake The Thing yes. <laughs> uh, very, in a very scary way in, in 1982. So he's really a student of cinema and, uh, you know, had learned a lot from watching The Masters and then was able to kind of use that mastery himself and then has gone on to, to influence a lot of people. But, you know, they don't, they don't do it as well as he did. And uh, even the new version, you know, there's a lot more 
violence, there's a lot more killings. And to me, it's less effective because yeah. what's effective about the original is you care about the characters. So you, you get upset when they get killed. And in the new one, it's like, oh, you see somebody, they get killed. You haven't even gotten to know who they are, what their name is. That's just what the horror audience, I think, expects these days. Um, I prefer, you know, the, the Hitchcockian suspense to, uh, you know, just the overkill of just gore for gore's sake. Right. And it's a very clean movie in many ways. Um, obviously, there's the sexual situations, there's some profanity. Not a lot of profanity, mm-hmm. though, if no, I remember. No, no. Um, clearly, it's an R movie because of the because of the violence, that factor, but not to the level of a lot of these movies. And I think point of view shots remind yeah. me of Jaws in many mm-hmm. ways. I yep. think because, like you said, in the beginning, you just see this person. You're seeing his view as he goes towards the sister and kills her. And I right. think there are a couple right. other scenes where you're getting Mike Myers, Michael Myers yeah. view. And that's, of course, one of the most effective things about Jaws, which had its own famous music score. Um, right. And yep. very suspenseful scenes. Not really a lot of death in the movie compared to a lot of the mm-hmm. scary, suspenseful moments where people are afraid, uh, yeah. which is similar to what Halloween does. Yep. And uh, before we go, we got to talk about Shatner. Yes. We had, uh, well, tell, you tell the story about the Shatner <laughs> uh, mask. So uh, the Michael Myers mask is actually, yeah, William Shatner, the Michael Myers mask that he wears is actually kind of a retrofitted Captain Kirk mask from from Star Trek. And the story goes that uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, who was the production designer and then later went on to direct Halloween 3 and was actually married to Nancy Loomis at the time, interestingly, went to this famous magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard, Burt Wheeler's Magic Shop. And they said, just buy a mask for the killer wear, you know, bring bring us back some masks. So he bought two masks. He bought a clown mask and he bought a Captain Kirk mask. And he took the Captain Kirk mask and he spray painted it white and he cut the eye holes larger. So he came into the room wearing the clown mask and they're like, oh, that's that's pretty scary. And then he went out of the room and he came back in wearing the Captain Kirk mask and they were like, that's it. That's perfect. There's just something really creepy about the fact that you're wearing this human face that, you know, you couldn't recognize it as William Shatner necessarily because it was just a mask and he had made some changes to it. But um, when I was talking to Carpenter, I asked him, you know, have you ever talked to Shatner about the fact that it's his face, you know, on Michael Myers? And Carpenter said, no, I tried to talk to him once at a fan convention, but I went up to him and said, hi, I'm John Carpenter. And he wouldn't look up from his cell phone. So... I ended up getting Shatner on the phone through a friend of mine, another Maplewoodian, uh, Stephen Power, who just edited his new book. And I, I asked Shatner, you know, do you remember this? And Shatner was like, no, I don't remember that at all. I would love to have met him. He was, you know, he's a talented filmmaker. And so then I went back to Carpenter, and Carpenter was like, oh, that's BS. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> he, he knew it, and he should have remembered it. Those kind of uh, quirky things are, are, are always fascinating. I mean, if he had come out with a different mask, maybe right. the whole difference whole visual would have been different. Yeah, well, I mean, if it had been a clown mask, then, you know... It would have been probably good, but not the same, because part of his whole character was he was just sort of this, like I said, zombie kind of lifeless, and even in the movie... Uh, I think Donald Pleasant's one of his lines is that he, yes. he had lifeless eyes or mm-hmm. empty yep. eyes or something like that. And the mask really, if he had a clown mask, yeah. probably would be a different movie. It would be, it would be it, basically, is what it would yeah. be, which is scary in its own way. But uh, yeah, just it's a different kind of feeling, I think, than, than this kind of like white, pale. It's just, it, look, it almost looks like he's wearing human, you know, like a human skin or something. You know, it's, it's very, just creepy. And it, it sort of goes along the the image of him being basically faceless and humanless uh, because his, his look. And it's interesting because the mask took on a different life in Friday the 13th when mm-hmm. Jason had a hockey mask. Right. So his right. character kind of maybe ripped off Halloween a little uh, 
Friday. Oh, well, anyway. yeah, Friday the 13th, I think, is a total ripoff of Halloween. I don't think any of the Friday the 13th movies have been anywhere near as good as the original Halloween. But horror fans have their preferences. and yeah. they, you know, some, some people, people like, prefer Jason. Yeah, but, and, 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 and the Halloween approach is more of a Hitchcock kind of film. Right. As Friday the 13th and a few of the others are just slasher movies, and people like to go right. and get scared and watch people get slashed and find there's an audience for that. But that was a thing that was interesting. They have their own mask, but it's it's not Mike Myers. And the other thing I want to mention is you, you said, now the film originally came out in around Halloween 1978. Correct, yeah. But it didn't really do well, and one of the people that that helped it later on was Roger Ebert. Yes, yeah, Roger Ebert uh, wrote a four-star review of it, you know, said it was basically on the on the level of Psycho, and uh, yeah, it really helped turn around the perception of the film. I mean, th these are the days when movies could come out and take a while to kind of find an audience. Now it's all about the first weekend. If people don't show up the first weekend, it's gone, and that's it. Um, back then, you know, it, it opened in a few theaters initially and didn't get very good reviews and didn't do great business, but stuck around long enough that people started, you know, telling their friends who had seen it, that you know, how scary it was, and some critics kind of rediscovered it after the initial round of reviews and then uh, it ended up going on to make uh, I think uh, more than 50 million dollars uh, off a you know three hundred thousand dollar budget which in today's dollars is can do about 180 million dollars so uh, that's when it became a franchise and started you know they started thinking about sequels at that point but uh, it took a while and it was really um, you know kind of a genuine grassroots hit which is uh, a hard thing to uh, to achieve these days because everything's all about you know, gearing it to the opening weekend and the marketing and all that. So, do you know what the release was at the time? How wide a release it was? Because I know release was different in those days than today. Yeah, it wasn't like today where you know movies go out to you know two thousand, three thousand theaters. Yeah, it was, was this when it was initially released? And it, not initially. I mean, I think I think it played you know in limited release for a while. You know, it was probably playing at like drive-ins and things like that. But eventually, you know, when, once the critics started coming on board and, and it, it started to show some momentum at the box office, you know, I mean, most movies don't grow from week to week. They're the, you know, the, the majority of the audience will go see at the opening weekend. And then, but when you see a movie that starts to kind of attain its own momentum, then you realize that, you know, you've got a, a genuine phenomenon there. And that's that's when it, you know, started to expand into a larger release. Was part of it also the, the reason that a lot of critics didn't like it early on was it, was there just an anti scary movie at the time? I mean, it was the seventies. There were a lot of great movies in the seventies. In fact, I think in seventy eight, you had uh, some of the better ones. I think you had Heaven Can Wait. You had uh, Midnight Express, Coming Home, Deer Hunter. I believe Deer Hunter was seventy eight. I mean, great pieces of cinema that really delved into a lot of issues. And here you bring this kind of low budget, old fashioned right. scary movie even though it's done well, or was it just some critics didn't know how to really handle it? Oh, I think there was some snobbery going on, yeah. I think it was just like, oh, what's this little exploitation movie? You know, I'm not going to pay much attention to it. But then, you know, people like Roger Ebert who really looked at it and said, wait a second, this is really brilliantly made. You know, it may not have the, you know, emotional scope or, you know, the social significance of, you know, The Deer Hunter or Coming Home and some of these movies that are great films. You look at a film in terms of, what is it trying to do, and does it achieve its goal? And Carpenter, you know, very clearly said at the time, and continues to say, my I have one goal: scare the audience. And judged on that basis, it's you know, it's a masterpiece. And it's also such a simple thing. It's yeah. This basic story: babysitter, small town, Halloween is a scary night. This guy escaped. It really played, like we said before, plays on that that kind of fear that a lot of people have, and didn't go nuts on the gore, didn't go nuts on right. the special effects or. Or even the script isn't some kind of, uh, it's not going to win an Oscar for best screenplay, mm -hmm. although that's what it needed, kind of some basic chat. It's very stripped down to its essentials, but uh, it has a really primal impact.
Excellent. Well, we've been talking to Bruce Fretz, he of Closer Weekly, Closer Weekly, and of course the New York Times. You can find his great Halloween oral history, which is written in a way that's really fun because you just you have all these comments from all the people involved. I um, mean, you just were basically asking questions and raising interesting points. That's at the uh, New York Times website, nytimes.com, or in the October 14th Arts and Leisure section. Tell us where else we can find your work. Uh, well, uh, Closer Search Weekly. Search you on the Times and web, then, website uh, and closer. You can check out my, uh, my, my blog, fretsonfilm.com. Yes. Uh, F-R-E-T-T-S on film.com. I write for Emmy Magazine. I do lots of Q&As uh, around the city for the SAG-AFTRA Foundation and other places. So I'm, I'm all over the place, so you can't miss me. Yes, and we will uh, also say you, you do the great columns on trailers, movie trailers. Yes. Which I yes, read a great one Yes, it's now become a regular uh, weekly column. Uh, Best and Worst Trailers of the Week comes out every Friday on the New York Times website, so we'll, check that out as well. We'll look to have you back to talk about that. One of the trailers I did see that you wrote about was for the new Elton John movie. Yes, Which Rocket comes Man. out next year. Um, yep. We're going to have Elton John, an Elton John film. We're going to have a Queen film. Yep. And then yep. I saw there was also a Studio 54 documentary. Yep. Um, is yep. Out. So the we can, glam rock era is back. Yeah. We can chat about that when we talk about the trailers. But thanks again for coming on and talking Halloween, and we'll chat with you soon. Always good talking to you, Joe. And that's it for this edition of The Retro Room. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, please do. They're all there on the Anchor Retro Room page, as well as Joe's Media Corner my basic media issues and discussions podcast. But tune in again next time for both the Retro Room and Joe's Media Corner. Until then, thanks for listening.